Good morning, my name is Ken. I'll be reading from Acts 2, verses 38 through 47. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, good to see you and good morning. Oof, that was rough. Is that kind of morning, huh? All right. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. My name is Jonathan Mosier. Uh, it is my privilege to open up the Word this morning and uh, as, as we look at what is really a, a beautiful text of Scripture, a beautiful um, picture of what the church looked like in Jerusalem, what it can be for us. And so turn Acts chapter 2. Years ago, I heard a preacher um, tell a story, and he was um, speaking of an idea very similar to the one we're talking about this morning, which is the importance of knowing where you are. And so as he told the story, he said that there were once uh, these two British naval officers who were uh, on leave for the weekend, and so they'd gone into London to have a good time, and so they found their way ultimately uh, in finding their way into a pub. And so as they sat there talking and drinking and chatting the night away, they suddenly realized that far more time had passed than they otherwise would have realized. And so as it was the early morning hours, they realized we need to get back to our hotel quickly. And so they stumbled out into the fog of, of, a, of a foggy London morning and, and through the fog and the haze of their own drunkenness were looking around trying to figure out where it was that they were heading and where they were supposed to be and they couldn't find their hotel and they couldn't find even which direction they were supposed to turn and wouldn't it happen that just at that moment a well-decorated and well-known general within the Navy happened to be walking down the street and spotted them. And so as this... As this uh, as this official walked up to them, as, he, as this general found his way over to them and spotted them, they, they saw him coming, noticed his military uniform, but had no idea who he was. And so they said to him, Bloke, do you have any idea where we are? And the officer was immediately indignant, indignant that they didn't recognize who he was, indignant that they didn't recognize what his uniform represented. And in that moment, he responded to them by saying, do you know who I am? And the two men looked at each other and said, oh no, now we're in real trouble. We don't know where we are, and he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> and the importance of that story is to say that who we are is really born out of where we come from. I had a history professor in college that used to say, if, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. 
And so as we begin to, a conversation over the next several weeks talking about the church, what the church is, what we're called to be, and how, the, uh, how some of those things specifically will play out within the context of Disciples Church, we need to understand first and foremost where we come from. Where are our roots? Where is our history? Why do we exist? Why are we ultimately here? And so this morning's sermon is really going to be an introduction. So this won't be a, a traditional sermon in, in, in the way that you're used to, but this will really be an introduction for what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks. And so at least uh, in many ways, this will be a touchstone that we refer back to uh, over the next several weeks. In the verses that Ken read for us this morning, what we find is a, a familiar snapshot of the church. And it's one that we look at uh, in a lot of ways with, a, with maybe a sense of naivety, but certainly a sense of nostalgia. I mean, we've heard so often the idea that what we need to get back to is the Acts chapter 2 church, that what we need to be is, is what we find in Acts 2.42, where there's this very idyllic picture that demonstrates how the church functioned in those early days. But understand that there's a lot of things we need to, we need to see in coming into a text like this. The first is that Acts is ultimately written as a narrative, that Luke is recording uh, what happened in the early church. He's giving, us, uh, he's giving us the story of what happened, but he is not providing a prescription. This is not an epistle where, where Luke is writing to us and telling us this is how it ought to look in your church and make sure you do this and do that and avoid those behaviors and do these things. Acts is written in a very different way. It really is a story. It's giving an account of what happened within the context of the early church. And so certainly there are many things that we find in this book worth imitating. Certainly there are even, uh, even doctrines that we pull as it comes to the role of a deacon, for instance, or uh, the establishment of elders. There are all kinds of things that we can pull from the book of Acts. But understand that Acts chapter 2 is not intended to be a prescription for the church. It is not meant to be inherently by itself a model that we are to do these certain things in this particular order. And in recent times, especially with the excesses of what we've seen in modern evangelicalism, this claim has been reiterated that we just need to get back to Acts 2.42. And that comes from a good place and it's well intended, but understand that all you have to do is read ahead another four chapters into Acts chapter 6 where you see certain Christians in the church complaining about the fact that their elderly people and their widows were not cared for as well as the Jewish widows were to realize that the early church had its problems. And if you continue to read, what you find out is that there was all of this mistreatment that was happening, even on the part of Peter, as he interacted with uh, Greeks and Gentiles within the church. And of course, you only need to continue reading into the epistles to find out that this very rosy view that we have of the church is not quite accurate where you have Christians mistreating one another and Christians excusing sin within the church. And in the case of 1 Corinthians in particular, you have Christians who are coming to church with the intent of eating to their heart's content and getting drunk on communion wine while other people are sitting on the outskirts hungry and thirsty. So our perspective of the early church is largely skewed. We have a very sentimental view of it. And, and if we read this passage as a checklist we're going to begin to miss the real beauty of Acts chapter 2 because it's a journal. If we view it as a prescription, we're going to miss what the early church really experienced, which is that they were a church so led by the Holy Spirit and so dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit 
that they begin to see lives and communities transformed. So this text ultimately should lead us to stop and ask, what is God calling us to? So for context, as we read this text and as we look at it this morning, for context, Jesus has ascended uh, back to heaven. He's obviously lived his life. He died on the cross. He was resurrected, and now he's ascended. And in leaving, he left behind a small group of largely non-influential people that were going to form his disciples on earth. I mean, these were fishermen and carpenters. These were blue-collar workers. Many of them were uneducated. I mean, we think about the disciples specifically, but think about the broader circles of influence influence that Jesus had and that the disciples had. I mean, these are largely uneducated people. These are people that don't have a lot of sway within broader culture. These are not philosophers. These are not orators. I mean, even in Peter's sermon, of which we just read a a very brief portion, even in Peter's sermon, what he preaches is so straightforward and simple. I mean, it's incredibly accessible. See, Christianity did not advance through philosophy or oratory, not primarily at least. And it certainly did not advance in those early days through conquest. I mean, for the first 400 years of the church's history, no one picked up a sword in defense of it. These were just people who went about their lives doing the things that God had called them to do, being faithful to respond to the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And Christianity at this time was not making its followers rich I mean, there was no social benefit to being a Christian at this point. In fact, to be a Christian at this point probably meant you were going to lose your home and very likely your job. It was a true sacrifice. And so the words of the New Testament ring in our ears where we are called to count the cost of following Jesus Christ. And that is certainly what the early church did. But what the church ultimately did was begin to produce communities that were unlike anything the world had ever seen. And so while historians for centuries have wondered at what it was that set apart the early church to the point where it exploded onto the scene and became the most influential force in the history of the world, even to this day, and think about that, even to this day, people wonder how an institution with such a a humble beginning could have grown to such influence and power. One historian, a man named Kenneth Lotterette, who's a professor at Yale, cites a few different things and multiple other historians, but basically he breaks it down this way. He says there were three things that marked the early church as being unique culturally. He says, first, they were, they were a peaceable people. They took the instructions seriously to live peaceably with all men, and that carried out into every single interaction that they had with other people. It even carried, uh, carried into situations when someone found themselves being persecuted or even on their way to being executed. See, even in persecution, Christians refused to fight back. They were known for praying for the forgiveness of their captors, and they went willingly to their executions. Secondly, they were a church that was marked by inclusivity. I mean, historically, religions have been geared towards particular people groups in particular places at particular times. So by ethnicity or race or class. But Christians were unique in the religious world because their ranks were not made up of one particular ethnic tribe. They were racially diverse and ethnically diverse. 
and they were diverse in class as well. You see this in the conversation that Paul has where he describes the church being made up of both Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor. And you think about the, the, the role of women in the early church where, where women who had largely had no significant place in, in society at that time were, were seen doing ministry right alongside of men, being a valuable part of the church community. And that goes back to the earliest moments of the church. I mean, you think about Lydia in the church of Philippi and the role that she had in funding and ultimately helping, helping guide some of the decisions of that church. I mean, she was, she was uh, immensely influential. And lastly, Christians were known for their generosity. See, at this time, you, you took care of your own. So your responsibility was to your family Maybe it extended as well to your extended family. Perhaps in some cases it extended to the village or the tribe that you were part of or the racial or ethnic class in which you find yourself. But what set Christians apart is that they didn't observe any of those lines of responsibility. In fact, the emperor Julian, who was angry at Christians, lamented of the situation. He said they not only take care of their, or their own poor, they take care of everyone else's poor. I've mentioned this at least once, maybe twice since uh, over the past several months, but one of the stories of the early church is that they cared so much about people who were, who were otherwise uncared for that they would go out into the woods to find children who had been left out in the woods to die because their parents didn't want them, and they would adopt these children into their homes. But where does all of that come from? La Tourette, this professor at Yale, a non-Christian who is non-committal in his explanation of these things still cites it quite beautifully when he writes this. He says, the more that one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unequaled in history. What caused this release of energy lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. But before I am a historian, I am human. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural happened? And even though La Tourette refuses to acknowledge what that specific, in his words, cause of energy may have been, we, of course, know the answer. It was the perfect, obedient life of Jesus Christ that led him to the cross that he did not deserve to die on. It was the three days that he spent in the grave and his magnificent resurrection showing his power over death and hell and sin. That was the spark that lit the fuse of the church. To use La Tourette's language, it's the power, the energy that continues to propel the church forward. See, we know what happened. What happened was Jesus. The gospel that we come to know and embrace and love. And that life of Jesus, understand this, did not end with his ascension. But it continues, both as he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and it continues as well in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. So imagine for a minute being one of those apostles. Imagine that you've communed with Jesus and you've witnessed his miracles and you've heard him preach and teach and you've heard him share in, 
in extraordinary fashion the depth of doctrinal truth that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount, and you've seen him interact in all of these amazing scenarios. You, you stared in horror at his crucifixion, maybe even with doubt in your heart, and you stared in wonder at his resurrection. Maybe you're one of the apostles that sat with Jesus when, it, when, when it's recorded that he ate a fish after his resurrection. He's here bodily, physically. Or maybe you, like Thomas, put your hand into the prints of the nails. And imagine experiencing all that and then hearing Christ's final instruction, which was, wait. Can you imagine how hard that instruction must have been for those early apostles to hear, wait a minute, I, all of this has happened and we're not going to immediately go out there and establish the kingdom. We have to wait. And Jesus' instruction is, wait because I'm sending another one who's like me. One who's going to give testament to me. One who carries on the life. And that one obviously being the Holy Spirit. He says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out in the upper room, miraculous things begin to occur. People are absolutely overwhelmed at what they see. As people whom they knew only to have spoken one language began to speak in foreign languages that they had never known. As they begin to see miracles performed. People are overwhelmed and they're confused and that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2 as Peter begins to preach the first sermon that would lead to the first church. And this simple sermon of Peter leads to the conversion, the baptism, and the entrance into the church of 3,000 people. So what was God doing in this moment? And what is he calling us to do now? Look at verse 42. It says of this young church, and they devoted themselves. And we'll just stop right there because already there's something we need to notice. The very first instruction that we see, or not even instruction, but the very first recollection that we see of the early church is that they devoted themselves, that the gospel that they had just heard from Peter, this declaration of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he had done for them and in them and through them, drove them to the point where they said, we are absolutely devoted followers. The gospel was beginning to shape their lives, not the other way around. They didn't say, I want to follow this Jesus and so I'm going to construct this belief system and, and construct a theology or a religion around the things that I want to see done. No, the gospel that they had just heard immediately began to transform them. These people were not consumers. They didn't sit back and wait and judge. Immediately they devoted themselves. And what did they devote themselves to? We'll see four things. And again, keep in mind, this is not a checklist, but there are all kinds of observations here for us that are valuable. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Now, I want you to notice something about that language because it's very interesting, and especially in light of what we find throughout the rest of the, uh, of the New Testament. Often what we'll find is references to the Bible being the law and the prophets. That's a reference to the Old Testament, and certainly that is good and right and true. The Old Testament is inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. It's recorded and preserved. It has immense value for the believer. It is, it is a part of our history as the church. It is, it is the doctrine and the instruction that we are given. But what's interesting about this phraseology is in this moment it doesn't say that they devoted themselves to the uh, rather to the uh, law and the prophets though they certainly observed those things but they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching in other words they devoted themselves to what would eventually become the whole of scripture the bible as we know it they didn't have the completed word not all of the books of the bible had been written but they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostle And you can see what the teaching of the apostles uh, is beginning in verse 22 because as soon as Peter begins preaching his sermon, the very first thing he says is, I want you to listen and hear what I'm going to say. And the first word out of his mouth then is Jesus. The foundation of the church and the foundation of our faith and the foundation of all that we believe, all that we are and all that we do is Jesus Christ. And the truth is, everyone in this room, regardless of where you are in your faith journey, regardless of whether or not you recognize Jesus Christ or are a follower of Jesus Christ, even if you're here and you're struggling with the very existence of God, understand that you are following the teachings of someone. There is a philosophy There is a teaching and there is a belief system that you are holding to, even if you would deny that any any such structure exists. And so maybe you follow a particular scholar or a philosopher, a religious leader or a spiritual guru. Maybe in your mind it's some amalgamation, a concoction of your own design that you've taken certain elements of this faith and certain, certain tenets of this philosophy and certain teachings of this of this guru and you combine them together to make your own manifesto. Maybe it's just your own musings. But understand that none of those teachings are authoritative. None of them can bear the weight of scrutiny. None of them can stand up to true and deep inspection. And what we're being told here is that the only true source and foundation and authority for truth is Jesus Christ himself. And that teaching and that, those recordings are borne out for us in Scripture. So here's the test for it. What is your response when Scripture says something that you don't like? And even as I say that, my guess is that most of you have one partic- particular teaching that jumps to mind that you have just wrestled with over the years. In our particular context in Western culture, maybe it's a, a particular teaching around certain elements of sin or behavior or sexuality. Maybe it's a personal struggle that you've experienced in your own life, or maybe it's born of the way that you were treated in an unfair manner by someone that you care about or someone that you should have been able to respect or care for, but were instead mistreated by. But whatever that thing is, you have to put You have to put it under the microscope of Scripture and say, ultimately, where does the authority for truth lie? Does it lie within my own assessment of what's right or wrong? Because I can guarantee you that will inevitably fail you. And if you want proof for that, all you have to do is look back at the history of humanity to determine what different people at different points in time thought was good and right and appropriate and true and realize that people, by and large, 
are called away from what is true and do what is expedient for their own lives. That's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, that we look back at previous generations and we condemn their beliefs as being antiquated or silly or old with no eye to the fact that someday a generation will look back at the time in which we live right now and say, what were those people thinking? How could they have missed this massive moral failing of an entire generation? How could they have missed what we know to be true and good and right? And those people will will repeat the same mistakes that we repeat and that those before us repeated. So what's your temptation when the Bible touches on something in your life that's sensitive? Do you bristle and ignore it? Do you go to great lengths in mental gymnastics to alter the meaning of Scripture altogether to make it say the opposite of what it actually says? So Dave, last week, um, was preaching out of the last uh, portion of Ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about the armor of God. And uh, he, he mentioned the sword of the Spirit being the word of God. And you think about what that is. It's a declaration of truth. It's a declaration, of, uh, it's a declaration that the word has ultimate authority. And so one author, in defining that same idea, said that the word of God is harder and sharper than you are. And here's what that means. When you, when you go about trying to alter or change the meaning of Scripture, it's like you taking a sword in your hand and deciding that you're going to change the shape or the bevel of that blade by using your thumb. It is inevitably going to cut you. Because what the Bible teaches ultimately is truth. It's eternal and it's uncompromising and it cannot be formed or fashioned into something else. And to try to make the Bible say something that it does not say, or to try to refute its teachings or ignore its instruction brings harm to the individual who tries. See, it's the truth of God's word that tells us who God is, that tells us who we are, and that tells us of our need for a savior. And look how this devotion to the word, this devotion to the apostles' teaching, look how it began to play out in their lives. Second point, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now that word has largely lost its meaning in our modern church culture. I mean, when we hear the word fellowship, typically what we think about is an event after a service that includes pie. Like, that is largely what we think about, right? It's a time where we get together and we hang out and there's food. And God bless pie, there's a place for it in the church. But that is not the point, ultimately, of what fellowship is. I mean, growing up, I remember our church had a fellowship hall, which was really just a fancy name for a basement. That's all it was. It was just a basement, fellowship hall. But what fellowship is, ultimately, is an all-in communal participation. An all-in communal participation. So here's what I mean. Look at verse 44. It says, they were together and they had all things in common. Verse 46, every day they met together in the temple and their homes. Now what were they doing in that moment? Is the instruction then that we have to show up at a church building every single day or if that we don't gather in one another's homes each day that somehow we're not being obedient to scripture? No, that's not the instruction here. But what it's saying is that it fundamentally changed their interactions. Think about how this would affect a modern church understanding. Our typical experience of the church is that we show up and we sing a song and we hear a word and we say hi to our friends and we leave, having, having rarely, if ever, experienced community. 
where people know you and you know them and they love you and you love them and where there is this mutual relationship where you are laying yourself down for them, you are laying yourself out in front of them, where there is an honesty and an integrity between the things that we say and the way that we actually live. And, and I understand that to some of you that sounds pie in the sky and crazy. And I'm not saying that that can even happen on the scale of as many people are in this room. But what I'm saying is, if there is no one in your life who knows you in that sort of manner, who knows what's going on in your heart, who knows the struggles of your life, who knows the things that are keeping you awake at night, who knows the difficulties that your family is experiencing, if there's no one that knows the sins you struggle with and cares you enough, cares enough for you to walk along with you in that and love you in that, then you have not experienced community. And what these people, at least to some extent, even in their own broken fashion, were experiencing was all in communal participation. They were remembering the instruction, or rather the lesson of Genesis chapter 2, that it's not good for anyone to be alone. And we're going to talk more in a few weeks about some of the ways that this plays out, so I'll keep this short. But understand this. We live in an extremely independent, individualistic culture. I mean, we love the idea of our independence. We love it collectively as Americans, and we love it individually as people. It's the American spirit in which we were bred. And we especially like to have our faith privatized. Because I don't want people knowing what I believe. And some people are going to look at me goofy, and some people are going to tell me I'm believing the wrong thing, and some people are going to call out that my life doesn't match up with what I believe, and ugh, it's just left a better alone. All right? We're going to put up the fence of our lives, and in these fences is where we live. And these, this is what I believe, and you can believe whatever you want, but just leave my thing alone. That is the air we breathe as people within Western culture. But notice the description that we're given in Acts chapter 2. That when people heard the challenge of the gospel and when people were presented with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, it says that they were saved, that they converted, they changed their beliefs and they placed their faith in Christ and their lives were transformed internally by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And that they were baptized, public identification with Christ, and that immediately then they were added to the church. And it gives all of that in one sentence. See, the Bible knows nothing of an individualistic faith. It knows nothing of an independent faith that is disconnected from other believers. It knows nothing of a Christianity that does not recognize oneself as part of a church. But immediately when these people put faith in Christ, immediately when these people experience the regeneration of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, the first step of action was obedience and baptism and ultimately entrance into the church. And here's the lesson, at least one of many lessons that we should draw away from that. You need other people and other people need you. And the lie of Satan is that if you continue on, you can do this thing by yourself, that you don't need help and you don't need to confess your sin and you don't need to admit when you're struggling and you don't need other people praying for you and you don't need to be pushed against. And it's what makes an environment where it's so easy just to bounce from place to place and to never find community and engagement. 
Notice then what it goes on to say. It says that within the context of that fellowship in that community, this church sold their possessions and provided for one another's needs. Now just notice what he's saying there because this isn't some sort of communism. No one's coerced into doing this. It wasn't as if these people had entered into Christianity and then it was like, oh, by the way, you need to read the fine print. Now you've got to sell your house and give everything here. That's not the instruction that's being given. And we know that because these people went on to own their own homes, right? They still had private property. But here's what it's saying. It's saying that they stopped functioning within a broader political system and began to operate as a family. So let me try to illustrate it this way. My boys lately are in the phase Um, where they have decided that certain things belong to each of them individually. So we have a large collection of toys, far too many toys, in my opinion, for the number of children that we have, but we have grandparents who are uh, incredibly generous and aunts and uncles and cousins who give old toys to us, and we've got all these toys. And, And we're experiencing what any of you who are parents know very well, which is that whatever toy one child is playing with, the other one immediately wants to have, right? And so I walk into the room the other day and the conversation as both boys are literally holding onto a truck, pulling a tug of war style over this particular toy. I walked in and asked what was going on. And my oldest son said, well, it's mine. And my younger son, younger son said, no, it's mine. And so I had the conversation with him about, look, boys, everything actually is ours. This belongs to us together. And if you really want to get technical, everything here belongs to me, <laughs> right? Probably not a good lesson, but ultimately it's my truck. (laughs) But when you begin to see that you function as a family, when you are so in relationship with other people that you begin to see their needs, and it begins to stir up conversations in your own heart and in your own life, where you leave a church gathering or you leave a dinner at someone's house and And as you're driving away, you begin to think, you know what, that person has a need and I think I could actually fill it. Man, that's a hard thing to wrestle with. Because we hold on to the truck of our life. It's my stuff. And what am I without my stuff? And the invitation of this passage is that within the context of the church and within particular context of community, what does it look like to begin to look at things within the context of a family? where things are no longer just mine. See, understand this. God is not after your stuff. And ultimately, I don't think he cares about your things. But what he's after is your heart in it. It's what 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says when it talks about the idea of generosity. And it says, let each one give uh, as he's decided in his heart, not under compulsion, The idea is not that God is standing there like the IRS with his hand out expecting his fair share. God doesn't need your stuff. He owns everything. But what he's saying is, I want your heart. And when God has your heart, inevitably it affects the way that we view the things that we own and the things that belong to us. It affects the way that we use things. That these people, rather than loving stuff and using people, begin to use their stuff to love people. Notice what it says third. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. 
And I think this means two different things. I think one, it means in kind of a generic sense, which is that they probably did get together and eat in one another's homes. But when this language of breaking of bread is particularly used in the New Testament, it most often references communion. He's saying that as a church, they regularly observed the Lord's Supper, which is that time when Christians gather together around the wine and the bread where we remember the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is part of what makes a church a church, and we're going to talk more about that in just a few weeks. But what defines a church ultimately, and you could define a church by a lot of things, a lot of things, but historically, what has marked a church is that the church is a place where the Word of God is rightly taught and the ordinances or the sacraments are rightly administered. At the very least, you have to have those things, which means you can be part of an organization that does good things and is very generous and does good works for people, but understand that if it does not have the right teaching of the word of God and the right application uh, of the sacraments, it is not a church. It's part of what sets the church apart. And so most often what would happen is they would gather together for a common meal, I mean a feast in some sense or another where they were inviting other people into their homes or they were gathering together as the church. And in those moments, wine and bread would be present. It would be broken and poured in remembrance of Jesus. And this was much more than being just another meal. It was a reminder that when the church comes together, we are gathered around Christ. And fourthly, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Now, that language is interesting. Again, it could just be a grammatical interpretation. So some people would just say they devoted themselves to prayer broadly. Some people would say maybe they actually had a a common set of prayers that they prayed when they gathered together. But either way, the idea is they they understood that they were in the ever-presence of God. But there was never a moment where they were apart from the presence of God and then when they gathered together, there was a particularly special opportunity to pray. So part of the reason that we have prayer when we gather together, part of the reasons that there is always a prayer in our Sunday morning time together is because for 2,000 years, this has been the function of what the church does. Not just to fill time in a Sunday morning, And not just so that we can check a box that says that we prayed, but because it is an acknowledgement that when we gather together, there's something special that happens. That where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is. It's a declaration of dependence on our Heavenly Father. And so whether it was formal or informal, they were devoted to prayer. Have you ever noticed how Paul And even in his writings, even in his letters to the church, he inevitably breaks out into prayer. It's this kind of odd thing that you see. You see it in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, chapter 1 in particular, I think it's verses 14 through 22, where, where he just kind of breaks into this rapturous declaration of who God is. Why is that? It's because he understood the dependence that he had on the Father. Let me just tell you, as one point of illustration, how I've personally been blessed by this this week. And I could expand this over the course of months or of years. So last week, and I didn't talk to Jessica about this, so hopefully it's okay. Um, So Jessica and I are expecting uh, our third child. I don't know if everybody knows that. Um, But we're expecting our third child. And so um, Jessica's about 12 weeks along. 13? All right. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> 13 weeks along. And, um, and so last week we had a scare and for a lot of reasons thought we might be losing the baby. Um, and so that was a really, a really terrifying moment for me. I, it, it scared me far worse than I would have realized. Uh, the joy that I found in this week was that in that moment when I found that out, um, there's a list of people in my mind that immediately I texted um, because I'm going, man, I, whatever happens with this, there are people that I want to know what's going on and there are people that need to be praying for this. And then uh, over the course of the last week, countless other people reached out and mentioned that they were praying and asked how they could be particularly praying and reached out to help us in various ways and people just mentioning that they were praying for me. And then I had opportunity to get together with a couple of you throughout the course of this week and was able to pray individually and, uh, and for some of you was even able to pray over an extended period of time with you and for you and you for me. And I can't tell you the gift that it is. And you know this, right? If, you're, if you've been a believer, you know this but the gift that it is to have a community of people who pray and who not only pray individually, but pray together. Where we're not only kind of giving that, the Christian encouragement of I will be praying, but then where you actually go through and follow up with it. Or where you just stop right where you are and, and you lay hands and pray. I mean, that's an incredibly, incredibly powerful thing. And what does all of this lead to in the lives of this early church? Look at verse 43. Awe came upon every soul. Now what led to that awe? What led to this feeling of wonder at what was happening in the church? They met God. The Holy Spirit indwelled the believers of the church. He empowered them. He united them together. And it leads to verse 46 where it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And the whole idea behind that is it led them to a transformed life. It led them to an entirely different way of living and thinking. They didn't withdraw from culture. They didn't become monastics. Nor did they just stay in culture as if nothing had ever happened. They were transformed from the inside out. And finally, it says in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as the world saw the interactions of the church, God was glorified and he was adding to their numbers and understand that this isn't a church growth strategy. This is the people of God responding to the leading of the Holy Spirit and God in his own providence and his own will using that to draw others into the family. I mean, this wasn't a raffle. It wasn't a giveaway. This wasn't a program. It wasn't a promotion. It wasn't a campaign. This is a church made of people whose lives had been so affected by Jesus Christ that they couldn't help but believe him to be central. And our tendency is to look to the big things, to the radical plans, to look to big mission events and outreaches and listen, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But the truth is that the big thing has been done already by Christ. That the work that truly needed to be done has already been finished. And that God uses his everyday means of grace by the Spirit through his people to make himself known and to draw other people to him.
And just look at one illustration from this text. Here's how incredible the gospel is. The very same man, Peter, who told Jesus Christ that he would stay by his side till the end and he would never abandon him, ends up denying Jesus Christ as Jesus is being whipped and beaten and torn apart. And in that moment, Peter's faith couldn't stand up to the investigation of a slave girl who simply asked, isn't that Jesus, the man that you know? Peter, so insecure in his opinion uh, of other people and so insecure in his faith in Jesus Christ, denies him. And here's what we find 50 days later. 50 days later. Peter has been so enraptured by his understanding of the gospel that he preaches this incredibly simple sermon and 3,000 people come to know Christ. What happened? He was filled, dependent on the Holy Spirit. See, it's the Holy Spirit who testifies in our hearts to the person and work of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of of sin and shows us our need for a Savior. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us for everyday life. Why? So that we might be a people who glorify God by humbly submitting to whatever he leads us to. where we neither run ahead of his leading or lag behind, but like Christ, that we say what he'd have us to say and we do what he'd have us to do. And so I extend openly the question that we began with. If this is ultimately what the Holy Spirit led this church to do, what is he leading us to do? Where has he placed you and where has he led you and how has he gifted you and what opportunities has he put in front of you? Who are the people he's placed around you with which you can have community and depth of relationship? Who are the people you're going to text when things go wrong? Who are the people you're going to be praying for throughout the course of your week? See, there's a personal, personal responsibility to that question and there's a corporate one. And over time, we're going to address both. But our prayer is that the Lord would lead us to be a church that lives this way, dependent on the Holy Spirit, that we might make much of our Savior. Would you pray? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the words that you've given us this morning. God, I thank you for the beauty of the way that we see that you care for and love your church. God, that you didn't just place us here and leave us to figure it out. You didn't give us a list of rules and requirements and then tell us just to do the right thing. But you gave your church, not just Disciples Church here locally, but your church in history and in all places, a charge. to live in an understanding of the gospel that we believe and proclaim, to invite others in, to care for and love one another, to proclaim your goodness and your grace to a world at loss. God, I pray that we would be a church that is faithful to stop and be quiet and listen that we would devote ourselves to the word and to prayer.
and that we would respond faithfully with the things that you place in front of us. So we thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers, the desires of our hearts, and the questions and the doubts that we have. And we pray in confidence that you hear and answer those prayers. And it's in your name we pray.